What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. My name, Michael Walker, and I'm here with... Mark Bigney. How's everyone today? I'm just going to take a quick moment just to say a few things. I just want to take this time to say Mark and I usually don't whore this out to Facebook, ask for likes and stuff like that. We don't have sponsors. And I think that just gives us the freedom just to speak our minds and not have worry about any re- repercussions. That in mind... I just really want to thank you guys for taking the time to download our episodes and being our listeners. And now the fact that, you know, that's just not, it's not lip service. And I, and now I can say that without worrying that you guys are thinking it's pillow talk or something. So thank you very much for being our listeners. And that being said, we have an errata this week. Mark, what do we have? Last week, I unfortunately attributed domain to Andrea Seyfarth, who had designed Puerto Rico. That was an error. Uh, I misspoke. It was, in fact, designed by Klaus Tuber, he of Catan fame. This is part of a trilogy of games. Uh, legend has it that Catan originally was three games all in one, Entdecker, Lowenhurst, and Catan, and uh, Lowenhurst was then redeveloped into Domain. Anyway, this this was pointed out by a listener actually after we had already began, begun the self-flagellation on Twitter. We take editorial accuracy very seriously on, on this podcast, and anytime we say anything incorrect, we want to correct the record. So let the record be corrected. We apologize for the error, and we're going to try to make sure that we are more accurate going forward. All right, back to our usual template. We're going to do games we played this week. Then some news, our featured game, which is going to be 51st State. Everyone says Master Set afterwards, and for whatever reason, that makes my eye twitch. We're talking about 51st State, and then we're going to be talking about what we think about Kickstarter exclusives. So what did you play this week, Mark? So last week, I did play a very good game of 51st State Master Set, but we're going to go into more detail about that later, so I'm not going to belabor the point now. Uh, We did get a chance, you and I, to play Tigers and Euphrates together, and I know that you have a general policy of not wanting to talk about games we played last week all the time, if it's a game we've already talked about. 
But once again, I think it is time for your weekly reminder that Tigers and Euphrates is the best game ever made. In case you've forgotten, I, I don't think it's you know bad to say Tigers and Euphrates. It actually you know you know makes me smile every time I even say it now. It's it's just that good. We played again on the new Windrider slash FFG slash Classics line, whatever they're calling it this second. They seem to constantly be renaming that. And it was good times. A couple newish players, and they had a little bit of difficulty wrapping their heads around some of the beautiful chains of consequences that occur in Tigers and Euphrates, where you split up a kingdom or you start a fight, and then that causes chain reactions. But I never get tired. Not only do I never get tired of playing the game, and I, I by no means am I an expert, but I've played dozens and dozens of times. So I at least know that there are these chains of consequences to look out for. And watching new players or newish players start to come to grips with all of these ripple effects that their moves have, I never get tired of that. It's a joy to see and watching people appreciate it. Whether they like the game or not, watching them dawn on the the, the greater aspects that their moves have is, is just wonderful. So I just wanted to give, once again, another quick shout out to Tigers and Fadies. All right, to bring up a game that... I, in my feeling, didn't age quite so well. It's incognito. I talked about it a bit last week, and I wanted to get to the table again. The whole deduction part still is excellent, but the whole board and the moving around and the mask pebble movement thing, where you could get two to three white pebbles and just not have a turn or not be able to do anything else, really needs a whole reworking, in my opinion. I was somewhat surprised to hear you speak so highly of Incognito, both on this show and generally, because I've not played it myself, but I've just heard about the outsized impact that luck can have on even just the activation system, and that just seems to be a bit of a problem. True, it's a shame, because the deduction part and the rolls and the cards, all of that is excellent, but just the whole board and movement is such a, you know, removes you from the game, which is very odd. And it's such a charming production, too, the addition you have. All those cute little wooden pawns of different sizes and shapes and that kind of creepy but still kind of adorable plastic mask. Yeah, they all have little Venetian masks on it. I would like to announce a breakup. I think I'm done with Charterstone. I don't think I'm going to play this game again. I'm sorry, Walker. We'd been getting together on the reg, and one of the things that I talked about when we talked a few weeks ago about campaign games, one of the things that I don't like about campaign games is it turns everything into a serious social obligation. We have to wrangle everybody and get everyone around the same table on a regular schedule or an irregular schedule or what have you. So that, that's one problem, and therefore I feel somewhat guilty announcing that I don't want to play this game ever again. I'm, I'm completely done with Charterstone. I, uh, you know, write me out of the campaign, retire my character, whatever you want to call it. It is really reinforcing my opinion that Scythe, which I enjoy by, which was also by Jamie Stegmeier, was a perhaps a bit of an aberration. Everything else that I played by Jamie Stegmeier has been either significantly or, in my estimation, grotesquely flawed. And one of the things that Charterstone does, which really indicates to me that he's probably not a top-tier game designer is that it really exacerbates all of the traditional problems of a lot of modern worker placement games. It's very, very, very light. There's not a whole lot going on. It's just very short-term transactional nonsense. And it leans into the multiplayer solitaire aspect. It really does. There are all these gameplay elements, which either consciously or unconsciously, I don't know if he was doing this on purpose, really encourages you to ignore what everyone else is doing. And any time the game system took a step forward, thinking, oh, maybe this, maybe he's going to open it up. Maybe this is really what's going to make things either deeper or more significant or really make me care about what, what the other players are doing. Then in the next game, they take three massive steps backward. I really like all the people I play Charterstone with. 
I always enjoy their company, but I'm sorry for a game of that is that light and that insubstantial and has that much multiplayer solitaire and rut- routinely clacks in at 90 to 120 minutes with people who all know what they're doing. Yeah, sorry, I'm done. I'm, yeah. That's it. Yeah, I can't lead, I can't add too much more to that. In fact, I was in the same mindset, and I'm just wondering, I'm going to compare it to Seafall. Like, I'm, I'm not sure what these guys were going for. In this uh, cult of the new atmosphere that we're in right now, if you have an interesting legacy idea, you have to get to it in the first few games, or else people are just going to lose interest. You can't, you can't wait for this build up and say, oh, well, it's going to be this big reveal, you know, like 11 games in. You know, I know we have short patience. I'm not saying this Cult of the New is the new way to go, but who is going to buy this game, right? You're not going to get the new gamer or the family gamers or, or you know, first-time gamers. These are not the people that are buying these legacy games. You are getting the Cult of the New people buying the are, are your core market. And if you're going to have a, a nifty hook, then you better get to it, else you're going to lose interest. I don't know. I think Stonemaier Games has its... It knows what it's doing in terms of the market, I think. The mere fact that he's been able to shift from Kickstarter into traditional retail distribution, I think, indicates that a certain degree of confidence about knowing the market and knowing how many units he's going to sell. I don't know if this confidence is going to be borne out. We'll see. I'm not particularly worried about Stonemaier Games' bottom line. They produce very, very physically attractive products, and they definitely have a lot of fans. I just don't think it's for me. Uh, And again, Scythe was just this strange unusual confluence of factors that I think makes it, you know, in, very enjoyable. I, again, I, 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 once again, to repeat, I think that Scythe is good, not great. But every other game I've, I've tried from Stegmire and Stonemeyer is just pff, no interest. And always with at least one or two game design decisions that strike me as borderline offensive. And so we're six games into Charterstone. And to be, to be charitable, that's probably three or four more than I would have wanted to, all things being equal. It's just sort of, uh, social pressure. I don't mean that to, to condemn anyone there. It's just, you know, there are these other people and going through the campaign. So if you're, yeah, well, you know, I like all of them. I'll go and I'll, I'll spend. No, I would infinitely rather do any number of other things. And so Charterstone and me are through. It's, it has a weird comparison. Oh, wait, that might have too many spoilers. I'm not sure. We can just edit this out if it does. Uh, has a really weird comparison. That's easy for you to say, Walker. I'm the one who has to edit it. <laughs> has a really weird. So you're no, no, no. You're abdicating judgment. I get to make yeah, the decision, and, and then I get to and fix do, it. Do you not notice how I'm just ignoring that and going on anyway, and just over talking you like I usually do? It has a really weird comparison to Pandemic Season Two, where it just keeps loading in all of this new information and new cards, and then introducing mechanisms to get rid of them again. It's you know, is this? You know, is this the legacy template? I don't know. It just makes no sense. Anyway, moving on, we will now talk about a game that I played this week called Barony. I know I did a video review. I'm not going to ask you to look at it because it could be terrible. I haven't rewatched it. I don't rewatch my stuff. But anyway, in Barony, it's very chess-like. All the moves are very predictable and straightforward. can predict when something's going to happen. If they don't have pieces here yet, you know that you have time to do certain things. I'm not going to go into all the mechanics, but it's very chess-like in where you can control the board. You can threaten someone's area in which they'll make him dictate a move. Either he can just sacrifice that particular area and go on with whatever strategy he wants, or he's going to have to, you know, confront you in that area. So we played two games back-to-back, one without the expansion and the second one with the expansion, and everyone seemed to enjoy the expansion. Because it's so tight like that, they didn't really introduce 
too many new things, so they kept it nice and tight, which I like. So that's Barony and its expansion, Barony Sorcery. I still haven't tried the expansion. I agree with your characterization of Barony. It was one of those very deliberative in a good way games. It was very easy to look forward a couple turns and then evaluate the consequences of that. And apparently sorcery kind of fiddles with that a little bit, makes things a little less predictable. Am I right? A little bit. Very, very, very tiny amount. Okay. You know, but as long as there's no hidden, nothing hidden there. So I think it mixes it up. But because everyone knows about it and knows what can happen, then they can... They can work to defend against it. Time for a two-week update on Rising Sun, I think. We've been we've both been playing a fair bit of Rising Sun. Uh, Walker, I think, is the only person left in the world without his copy. Yeah, because, you know. I uh, think they shipped, they shipped uh, something like 7 billion units. So I think everybody has a copy in the world except for, for Walker, who doesn't have one yet. And I have to say that although some of my early observations, namely that it's not really a negotiation game and it it tries to pretend that it is that so far has still been borne out for me, but it is growing on me a little bit of the weirdness. I'm, I'm grappling with a little bit of the strangeness. I'm grappling with a little bit of the way information is presented and trying to figure out the consequences of moves a couple turns out. And the similarities with blood rage seemed to be largely superficial. It's still a lot about managing special powers and it's still a lot about, getting a whole bunch of overpowered, broken combinations and throwing them against each other. But all the other elements, the way that conflict works on the map, the way that units are moved around, the way that you want to use your units and deploy them, the way you want to finesse things about area control and things like that, those are very, very different. And I'm starting to appreciate those more, whether it continues to rise in my esteem or whether it uh, proves to be as good as its spiritual forebear is yet to be seen. We'll, uh, we'll of course, be giving you more information on that later. I think it's only a matter of time before we come to our somewhat mature opinions and, and give it its full due as a feature game. Uh, but for now, just as an update, we've been playing a lot more of it, and it's, uh, it's, it's proving to be better than I initially suspected. Yeah, I'm enjoying it more and more. We played with the new Chinese two factions, and it was a good time. I'm, I wasn't so keen on the... Kami Unleashed. Kami Unleashed. I think after you've played it for a couple of years and, you know, are getting tired of it, then that would be a good time to introduce it. Other than that, I think it's just too much. This is one of the things, and we'll talk a little bit about this later when we talk about Kickstarter exclusives. When you get a Kickstarter this big with this many things in it, it's sometimes hard to separate out the signal from the noise. And it looks like the new factions are good. Most of the new card sets are good. The Kami Unleashed stuff is probably a little bit overbaked. It's just a little bit too much weirdness, a little bit too much, uh, a little bit too many uh, cards to parse that are spread out around the rest of the table, a a little bit uh, of strange timing interaction. It it didn't seem to add much to the game and it made things significantly more difficult. It also really messed with the faction balance in a way that I did not find satisfying. But again, more details on all this later. It's. An interesting system to wrap your head around, to be sure. I'm going to segue with the negotiation we just talked about into my game of monthly game of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. And the fact that I don't know if people think that this is a negotiation game, but the amount of negotiation that went on last night was ridiculous, which led me hopeful. We also brought it up about Rising Sun and negotiation and just the fact that we're all getting very used to all the mechanisms in TI4, so maybe that's what's bringing in the more negotiation, and I'm wondering if that's going to be the same thing. I've already said this in Rising Sun, once people get to know the mechanisms more, whether 
they can parse out the advantages and disadvantages of all the actions and therefore, you know, manipulate the system more with bribing. That's yet to be seen. But what I want to talk about with Twilight Imperium 4th Edition is the end game state and the fact that the more you play a game, the more its weaknesses come to light. And never did I say that Twilight Imperium 4th Edition had fantastic game mechanisms. No, no, no. I have you on record. All of the internet agrees with you, by the way, that it is the greatest thing ever, E-V-A-R-R-R, triple exclamation point, uh, and that I'm clearly just some sort of fun-hating douchebag for not liking it. I remember on this on this podcast, you, you threatened to stop, like you upturned the I'm, table, you smashed the mic over my head. It was a whole thing. It's true, but I'm pretty sure the, the fun-hating douchebag has nothing to do with Twilight Imperium 4. I think that's just a generalization. Anyway, the, the end game state is, came once again, it happened in the last few games where a bunch of people all got to the end game state and it was more like a king-making experience and it was like a 15-minute negotiation and a big debate on, you know, what roles to take in the last turn because it was obviously going to be the last turn. So an expansion that mixes up the victory condition, I think, is going to be required to make it better. When I was talking about Twilight Imperium 4th Edition and I talked about how it was simple when it needed to be more robust, that is one of the things that I was thinking about, although I probably didn't articulate it very well because, again, if I'm hating douchebag. But the fact that, for example, the game cares very much about turn order, about the order of activations, like first order tile one goes, then order tile two, and that's not going to be clockwise around the table. But as the weird corollary to this, the order in which you choose those all-important order tiles is just clockwise from whoever the speaker happens to be. And so the classic the classic instance of hope the person to your right takes speaker, not the person to your left. Because if the person to your left takes it, you might be boned. And that might cause you to lose the game because this is a game where you played at 10 points and the first tiebreaker is, well, what turn order are you that, that turn? And so it's that kind of desperately unsatisfying nonsense in a six plus hour game that I find pretty offensive. True. And I totally agree with that. And the argument can be made that you have to, you know, prepare for that. You have to, you know, work the system. So, you know, that doesn't happen, but exactly like you said, it is unsatisfying. The And that actually brings up an interesting point about, you talked about negotiation games. To my mind, negotiation can creep into a game often to sort of try to compensate for its fundamental mechanical failings. And when you have to spend 15 minutes haggling over who the kingmaker should crown, that is an example of negotiation creeping in because the game doesn't, you know, has some serious problems and might not work internally. In the case of Rising Sun, I'm still not optimistic that negotiation is going to creep in because as people understand the system better, they're further able to internalize their own self-interest. And again, if I'm in a position where it obviously makes sense for me to pull a certain mandate or do a certain move or occupy a certain province, the game doesn't have robust enough negotiation elements for you to offer me anything that I could possibly want. No. No, that was definitely going to be the point I was going to make. Like when I, the way my my mind works, I bring everything to its fullest end. And when I'm thinking about, once people know more about it, there's going to be no negotiation, but there, the tools to do that might be too limited. That's the only thing, the wall I see in the future. Right. Because to give credit where credit is due, now that we're kind of comparing Rising Sun and TI4, in TI4, trade goods are very valuable. The things that you're able to give to other people these uh, the promissory notes effectively or the trade goods those are valuable those can really encourage me to go say perhaps pick on a stronger opponent rather than my weaker neighbor if my weaker neighbor is able to bribe me that's all well and good rising sun it's not you can offer coins and you can offer ronin and i'm I, again i'm i haven't seen situations 
given the lay of the map, given the way mandates work, given the way alliances work, where it makes sense for someone to be able to pursue a less valuable objective if you throw some money at me. But maybe that's just because of player count. One thing that I am looking forward to is spending more time with odd numbers of players, because then someone's going to be left out of the cold and out of an alliance, because in Rising Sun, all alliances are two people only. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of that, and maybe in that context, we're going to see a little bit more negotiation, but... Yeah, since we brought Rise of Sun back up, I just remembered a point that I wanted to make in the game that we played, because it doesn't happen very often, and you know it is a sign of a good game, is when you look around and everyone is standing up, right? And you have to admit that, you know, it means that everyone is enjoying themselves and there's a moment going on, so that was a great time for sure. I agree with you. It is a very good sign. Part of that, though, must be admitted, was because there were a large large amount of plastic on the board, and we needed to stand up to see everything, which is also not a slam on the game, because it looks so good on the table. So true. Do you have, anything, do you have any other games for this week? One last game for this week. I, I got to play a game called Han. Now, a bit of backstory. In, uh, in the year 2000, actually... There was a game called Web of Power released. It was originally in German, uh, Cardinal and Koenig, and this is by Michael Schacht. Michael Schacht is a Euro game designer who's infamous for designing themeless games, relatively light, accessible stuff. He also did Coloretto and Zuloretto. And Web of Power was a very, very, very simple, very accessible, and in my estimation, extremely engaging area majority game. Had a number of very, very clever bits, a lot of really tense decisions and trade-offs, and it was redeveloped into a retheme called China, which changed a couple of things around the margins and also just changed the map. I never, I never got China because I preferred the original European map of Web of Power. I thought it looked better. It was more, it was more compelling to me, just in terms of you know cultural proximity and all that stuff. And Han, which was released a couple of years ago, is sort of the uh, you know ultimate edition of China and Web of Power. It has variant maps in the box. It's got a couple of variant gameplay modes that you can use or not. And I was able to break it out recently. And I, I, I love this game. It is so quick and so compelling. I was teaching somebody who had played Web of Power a long time ago and barely remembered it. But within turn two or three, I was looking at my cards and figuring, oh, this is a tough trade-off. This could lead to this other thing. And this has these follow-on consequences there. I need to protect this flank and worry about all these other things. And this was in a two-player area majority game, mind you. Two-player area majority games are hard to do well. And Han sings the most with three. With three, you can play either of the two maps, and it's 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 really, really good and tense. But it scales from two to five, this edition. It's a small box. It's super cheap. I can't say enough good things about this game. If you like area majority games, this is one of the best, in my estimation. And it is great in terms of borderline gateway games, but it still has a lot of tense and crunchy stuff going on. It is a fabulous design, and I'm not a huge fan of everything of, an, of pretty much anything else Michael Schacht has done. I think Colorado's fine and cute, but Han or Web of Power, or China. Seriously, they're all the same engine. Great, wonderful game. I'm glad it's back. I'm glad I was able to get this newest edition. It took me a few years to track it down. I've been having a blast with it. Nice. So that is Games We Played This Week. On to the news, and why it really doesn't matter. I've got Harry Potter the Miniatures game. Really? Who asked for Harry Potter the Miniatures game? I don't know. Who's publishing this? That would require me to write it down, Mark. Harry Potter miniatures adventure game. The miniatures are amazing looking, but other than that, like, who is asking for this? Oh, this is being put out by Night Models. These are the same people that did the Batman miniatures game. And indeed, the miniatures there are beautiful. 
So it wouldn't surprise me if the Harry Potter miniatures were also really well done. But it, It's going to go on Kickstarter, and I think that might give it the push that it needs to get its money. Because, you know, there's a Harry Potter group out there, and they're going to want it. People do love Harry Potter. And if there's a role, I don't know if there's a role-playing system for Harry Potter, but if there is a role-playing system for Harry Potter, guess what? You've got an entire miniature line coming up for you now. I do remember that someone wanted, I was trying to give some RPG recommendations to somebody, and they were asking for something that was kind of like Harry Potter. And it's not, for for a well-established fantasy trope, like, you know, young adults learning how to use magic, there's not a whole lot of dedicated RPG stuff for that. I I was relatively surprised. There are some things, you know, obviously there's a a GURP module, a module or two, but there's GURPs for practically everything. But it, you know, it's, it's a relatively underserved demo in terms of gaming which is weird so something that caught my eye in the news is the next race for the galaxy expansion i'm always looking for uh new race for the galaxy stuff i'm a huge fan of the game so and this is where things get a bit confusing because race for the galaxy now has three different quote-unquote arcs there's the base game arc which has three expansions and then there's the Alien Artifacts expansion, which is not compatible with those other expansions. So you need, you know, you need the base game and Alien Artifacts. People weren't a huge fan of that for a variety of reasons. Then there's Xeno Invasion, which is a third arc of expansions, which is not compatible with base game expansions, and it's not compatible with Alien Artifacts either. And it is getting its second expansion in that arc. So there have been, there will be five expansions for Race of the Galaxy, but only yeah, it, it's it's a whole thing. So it's going to be called Xeno Counter-Strike. And I actually liked Xeno Invasion a fair bit. I thought it was a very solid expansion. I didn't like how the new bit, the the eponymous Xeno Invasion, worked with two players. Uh, maybe Counter-Strike will do something about that. Anyway, the time frame for this is is pretty broad. Tom Lehman says it's probably not going to be out until 2020. But more Race to the Galaxy is good as far as I'm concerned. Looking forward to it. More symbology. Hooray. My next thing is Munchkin the CCG and same thing with the Harry Potter. I'm wondering, not the exact same thing, but I'm just wondering what market they're going for. Do they think the CCG players are going to buy a Munchkin game? And do they think Munchkin players are going to buy a CCG game? Like I'm not, not hundred percent sure this is coming out by from Steve Jackson and with Eric Lang on the designer notes. So I don't know if that's going to be enough. No one has even, it's coming out this week and I haven't heard a single person in any of my groups talking about it. Well, we're, we're not Munchkin people. Munchkin's already practically a CCG unto itself with the rate of expansions that get released. So the people who are, are really into Munchkin might, might get into this. I don't know. I mean, clear, clearly these Munchkin sets move because they keep putting out more and more and more of them. Just, they're not for us. No, it's totally true. I don't even know what to say. We'll see. Well, then why did you open your big fat mouth in the first place? (laughs) So mean. Finally, I've got news about Amigo Spiel. Amigo Spiel has largely, though not exclusively, been putting out small card games for many years. They were the people who published Six Nymphed. Uh, which was re-themed as Category 5. Anyway, this is a game uh, that I I loathe, and I I resent the fact that it won the DSP the year that it got released. Uh, They also put out No Thanks, which is also kind of cute. So they've got a bunch of these kind of cute, easily accessible uh, card games. But they're opening uh, an American distribution arm. their, Their products have been available in the U.S., for a long time, but they've always been licensed or distributed by somebody else. And now they're taking it up on themselves. The reason why I bring this up is not so much because I care deeply about what happens to the Amigo Spiel titles, 
but because I do care about the fact that another publisher that's not Asmodee is trying to expand its distribution and publishing arms. And that's potentially good news. I don't, I'm not suggesting that they're going to become some sort of behemoth to challenge Asmodee on the world market or anything like that. But at least it demonstrates that there are publishers that are not content to see uh, – that are not content to you know, recede and just focus on the European market while Asmodee gobbles up everything even there as well and, and kind of becomes a hegemon in the North American distribution and production arm. So good for them. I hope they do well. Oh, they'll be bought next week, I'm sure. Sure. That's all I've got. All right. So now on to our feature game, which is going to be 51st State. Okay. So why does the master set cause your eye to twitch? Because it's relevant. I just, why can't it just be 51st State? Because there already was a game called 51st State. Yeah, but this is the new one. It's obviously better. Let's just disregard the other one. I agree that it's better, although I don't think it's unambiguously better. I agree that it's better, but it had to call itself something. I suppose so. It's great for marketing, right? It makes people want to buy it, but I don't know. Just it's it's like saying if you had a complete edition or or Blu-ray edition of a movie, you don't say let's watch you know Star Wars the complete edition on Blu-ray. You just say let's watch Star Wars. That's that's all. fair. That's fair. So first of all, Mark will tell us about where Fifty First State the Master Set came from. How did you know I was going to do that? Because it's going to be our new thing. Well, that, I guess I'm predictable that way. Okay. So first there was 51st State. Uh, this was already sort of the germ of the system was already there. There's so there, there's a lot of overlap between what the system has become and what it started out as, but it had a number of problems. One of the problems was the iconography was not very good, which is perhaps forgivable. But what is unforgivable is that the iconography was inconsistent, namely... The same graphical depiction on one card might mean, in point of fact, something entirely different on a, on a different card. So you always had to look up what cards did. And in classic Portal fashion, there was endless rules threads about how all these things worked. And it just got worse and worse as expansions got released. There were some features that were very weird. Like, for example, there, was a, a le- there were leaders that were introduced, and those were also very strange. But one thing that it had that sadly uh, has not survived in its various translations is what's known as the Rule of Three. Because 51st State, right from the beginning, was a card-based tableau builder. You have these cards, and you use them to build a tableau, which allowed you to build an engine, which would get you points. And one of its innovations was you could never use a card more than three times. And after that, it went away. How thematic this is is a matter of question. I mean, it's a post-apocalypse, things break down, whatever. But it forced you to always transition and know that your engine was going to break down, and you had to constantly build new engines. The first redevelopment of the system was Imperial Settlers. And in Imperial Settlers, it introduced a a new feature, which was everybody had their own unique deck of cards. There was the common deck of cards, and then everyone had their unique deck of cards. And this initially appealed to me, but in in practice, I found that it was actually a step backwards, because basically what it meant was every faction had sort of a pre-built combo that you needed to find. And it was either through pulling through the decks or you might get lucky and you might start off with with those cards. So it felt that it was one of those instances, like I've said before, of faction differentiation narrowing your range of options rather than broadening your range of options. I brought this up in the context of Gaia Project. Anyway, it was cute, though. Imperial Settlers was very cute. But uh, another problem, and this may seem like a petty complaint, but I almost never make this complaint, and it was definitely a problem in Imperial Settlers. The fonts on the cards were so tiny that it was often difficult to even look at your own tableau and figure out what your cards did, much less on, on somebody else's tableau. The cards were very difficult to read, especially from a distance. And then, then they redeveloped Imperial Settlers into 51st State Master Set. 
Now, the reason I think why they call it the Master Set is not just pure marketing. It's because there are a couple of expansions included in the base game box. We'll get to that later. I have some things to say about the expansions. But it's preserved in all of these three versions. It's preserved, I think, one of the most interesting elements, which is every turn you have to use all your resources. Very often in games like this, your resources just go into a massive pool and you just you can just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's good to be able to spend a couple turns saving up for something. But in 51st State, you have to use all your resources every turn or everything that you don't spend gets lost. There are a couple ways around this, but usually that's what's going on. And that's one of the things that I think in terms of really giving it a hook is... Uh, helps to differentiate it from the masses of other similar Euro games where you build your engine to, to, to turn out points. You've got these little tactical puzzles about, well, first of all, how do I generate enough resources to build my uh, uh, to, to be able to build up my stockpile? But then once I've got these resources, how am I going to be able to put out enough production buildings to use it every round or at least as best as possible? And this is one of the ways that the uh, the, the loss of the rule of three is not too terribly painful uh, because there's a limited amount of time in the game and so you're probably not going to be using your buildings that much more than you would in, in 51st State. Don't get me wrong, I miss the loss but in Master Set, it's not the end of the world that, it, that it's gone because again, you have the challenge of maximizing your resource use every turn and the relatively short time frame of the game ensures that you're not going to be you know, building your successful engine on turn one and only using that because most buildings can only be activated activated once anyway per round. And so it's not like the, you're going to get this one killer combination and that's it, you're done, you're going to be skating the rest of the game. And let's be frank, sometimes in Tableau Builders, even the Great Race for the Galaxy, which is probably my favorite Tableau Builder of all time, sometimes you have that problem. Sometimes it's the case that your engine comes out very early on in the round and you just pump that engine for the rest of the game. You can't do that in 51st State, and that's one of the reasons why I think it really helps to be a little more dynamic than a lot of other games of its ilk. Oh, that's all, that sounds great. I'm going to talk about what you do in 51st State. So like you already said, you've already talked on about mostly everything there, but it's like it's a tableau management game where you need to construct and manage your tableau in a way that's going to feed your resources and card draw, which I find is the most important part of the game, in my opinion, and that you can need to maximize to maximize your victory point output. So much like Imperial Settlers, you have your main board down the middle where you have your three columns, which makes it more difficult for your opponents to attack you on the one side you keep your resources on the other you have your three different types of buildings you have your income phase where you get all your income and then that mark said then you need to start pumping your engine you need to maximize you know how hard do you have to hurt someone in order to you know stop them and that's going to reward you at the same time that brings up two two of the uh, interesting elements that i think bears emphasis in 51st State Master Set. One of them is that the game introduces lots of different kinds of bottlenecks that are interesting tactical puzzles to to explore. So, for example, at the very early part of the game, you're going to find getting cards out to be somewhat difficult. You don't have many resources to get them out, and it's going to be a challenge to get them there. And so, as a result, cards, namely the cards in your hand, since they have so much difficulty getting the table, aren't really much of a deal. But right around the midway point of the game, things start to change. Suddenly, you have these res enough resources to get cards out, but now you need to prioritize two, two additional problems. Number one, there are the resources you need to use the cards you've already built, and those sometimes are the same cards that you use to get uh, same resources to get cards out. And then, as Walker just mentioned, 
card scarcity becomes a serious, serious problem. And suddenly this thing you had more than enough of, now that's the primary bottleneck. And getting more cards can be a serious challenge. And again, in terms of maintaining a dynamic, evolving state, I think that 51st State does a really good job of throwing new challenges at you over the course of the game, which is really a testament to its uh, core systems, despite the fact that it's a relatively short game. That's its main key. I don't think it ever overstates its, its welcome. It's got a great victory point system where as soon as you hit a certain point, I believe it's 25 points, then you know that's the turn that the game is going to end. So you can see fairly well how it's ramping up. You can see, well, the game is probably going to end next turn. Someone hits that 25 and then you finish out that turn and whoever has the most at the end is going to win. I've seen, I've played a couple sessions where it was a little on the verge of being too long. If you're playing with four players, I think three is probably better than four. Honestly, it's a two to four, well, one to four player game. There's a solitaire variant, which is, you know, fine. But I prefer it with three than with four, precisely because it helps things speed along a little bit faster. If you play with players that have serious analysis paralysis, then I think the game could definitely overstay its welcome. But by itself, it's a relatively tight, you know, 45 to 70 minute top experience where the game doesn't encourage encourage much analysis paralysis, but if somebody brings that because that's their own personal cross to bear, then things might get too long. All right, we talked about card scarcity, and let's talk about the cards themselves, multi-use cards. There's three main things you can do with these cards. You can make them so they give you continuous income every turn. That's like making a deal, and it's got a symbol on the bottom, which you put in behind your card. You can burn it out of your hand which gives you immediate resources, or you can build it into your tableau, which will help you pump your engine. It could be all sorts of things from giving you income at the beginning of every turn, from letting you pump resources into it to give you victory points, to giving you a one-time big push, you know, based on the types of cards you already have out. So I love multi-use card systems, and this one I think really pulls it off well. Yeah, there are three ways to put out a card and three different kinds of resources to put those cards out. And it's very straightforward, but nonetheless gives you a lot of tactical flexibility in terms of what you need cards for. I've been in positions where in the past where I was getting a card thinking I was I was going to use it for one purpose, and then circumstances changed, so I used it for something else. And being able to adapt like that is really good, and it's well done. So let's talk a little bit about the player interaction of this game, because this is another way in which this game, I think, is better than a lot of its competitors, because there's not a huge amount of player interaction, but I think it's relatively well done. One of them is there's drafting. At the start of every round, everyone is guaranteed an income basically of two cards at minimum, and those cards are drafted. You just deal the cards out, and you draft them in a serpentine order. First, it's clockwise from the start player, and then it's counterclockwise from the last player. And indeed, because these cards are multi-use, that lets you engage in hate drafting with a, with a, a certain degree of flexibility. I can look at a card and know, know that someone's engine would really profit from that card, but I can draft it from them knowing that even though it won't benefit my engine, I could use it for something else because cards can be used for lots of different things. And so that's great. And then there's the combat. So let's talk a little bit about the player versus player combat because it, it is... It is. I think it is reasonably interesting. Why don't you walk us through it, Walker? The usual resource are the, these really nice gun components that you can trade in, and they're going to give you these red arrow tokens. There's three different colors of arrow tokens. There's the gray ones that let you put buildings out. There's the blue ones that let you make deals, and then the red ones that let you attack your opponent. And depending on what building you want to destroy of theirs, there's the three columns. Like the, the top one is your production line, where you get your resources every time. The second one is your feature line, which you're going to put in all your one-time usual 
victory point things and things that are going to give you victory points at the end of the game. And then the last column, which is your action column, which are all your victory point pumping machines. And it gets difficult as it goes down the line. I think you'll need three three red arrows the first one, four for the second, and five for the third, right? So you have to make sure you have these. And what you do is you'll spend these arrows. You're going to get the resource icons that are in the loot column, the same resources you'd get if you'd burn them out of your hand and it becomes rubble for them so they get an advantage they get an advantage to when they build another building in their next turn they'll have a, a discount and in advantages to that but it, and it stops them from you know pumping a, a very useful engine exactly right one of the things that is great about this game is that when you see that someone has built an engine that's really humming along and they're really starting to dominate if you're in a position to do so you can burn part of that engine to the ground but you get some sort of transactional benefit from this. So it's not just a question of hurting somebody else. It also provides some guidance as to which one you might want to, what which card or element of the engine you might want to burn down because they're going to give you different rewards. And so you might seek it for that reason. And those two elements help take away the sting of being predated upon. You don't feel that it's quite so arbitrary or that someone's picking on you just because you're winning. And it also gives the victim a leg up on transitioning their their engine into something else. Because not only is it the case that they can rebuild from the rubble of their their past building, but chances are they're not going to be able to rebuild the same thing. The odds of that happening are vanishingly remote. So what they're probably going to have to change gears. They're given a little bit of help in doing so, though. And so, again, you end up with something that's far more dynamic than a lot of these other engine builders tend to be. I love Through the Ages. Three, Through the Ages is a great game, and I think it's really well done. But in Through the Ages, it is hard to pivot. Yeah, sometimes you have to do it, and it's not as though you can rest on the same strategy that you're doing in, in the early ages that you can do in the laters. But it's costly, and it's difficult, and it's, it's, it's cumbersome. In 51st State, you're frequently forced to pivot, either because your income isn't aligning with your engine, or vice versa, or a new card comes in that you have to, uh, have to make adaptations, or someone burns down your stuff, or you have to burn down someone else's stuff. And these are constantly the kinds of things that you have to weigh every round, and it gives you the sense of flexibility that a lot of other games of this type don't. Yeah, that was exactly the point I was going to bring up when uh, we were talking about attacking. Like, say you're playing a game where you're not offensive, you're not attacking other people, and suddenly an opportunity arises, you can quickly pivot. Almost every turn you can pivot, but even for the attacking, there's these cards you can purchase that will get you a bunch of attack icons. Almost every faction on their card gives you ways to either get guns or attack icons, and you can suddenly pivot at the at the on any turn and, you know, do a streamlined attack and, you know, accomplish what you need to. I think they, they really hit the mark on it. And the more I play the game, the more the benefit of attacking other players becomes evident. And again, it's not particularly hard to be predated upon in this way because you have to remain flexible anyway during the core game. Remaining flexible after being attacked is it ought to be natural if you know what you're doing. And the more you play... Again, Walker talked about how there's this card scarcity, and card scarcity, especially during the late game, can be punishing. But burning down somebody else's stuff requires zero cards from your hand. And so if you have an excess of resources, it's one of the things you can do if you've got resources and no, and no cards. Go burn down somebody else's stuff. Because you can burn down your own stuff, that's fine too, but that costs cards. And if you don't have cards, attacking other players, especially once they've been letting their engine hum along, can really help, thing, help things going. And just as a minor side note, I think that the visual representation of the game really, really helps because in order to track whether cards have been activated in a round or not, you leave the resources on the cards. 
And so you can just look at somebody's tableau. And if one of their action cards has a bunch of resources on it, that means that that's what's getting them points. And so you don't have to spend your entire turn carefully reading every card they've got. You can just glance and say, oh, that thing's piled high with resources. Must be good for them. What does it give me? I think I'll burn it down. And all that having been said, if you're desperately afraid of being attacked, I don't think you should be. But if you are, there's a recourse. In this game, you can pass. Once you pass, that what that represents thematically is basically circling the wagons and retreating back behind your walls. Once you pass, no, no, nobody can attack you anymore. So that introduces an extra little bit of, of grist for the tension of action selection. Uh, I haven't found it to be super consequential in the games that I've played, but it, it's, it's there. If you're really worried about something bad happening to you, you can just pass early, accept a little bit of inefficiency, and know that you can't be attacked. Yeah, it's really simple but it really is is a really clever game mechanism in my opinion. It is really simple. Every time I sit down to teach the game, I, I kind of forget how approachable this game is, but uh, it's just really, really, really straightforward. It doesn't have a whole lot of different kinds of card interactions, but nonetheless, there's a whole bunch of really different kinds of cards, which is really well done. So the core elements are very simple, but allows for a lot of elaboration. Uh, so every time I play this game, I'm reminded of how quick pleasant and approachable this game is despite well i keep saying pleasant it's a strange thing to say about the game because the theme which we haven't mentioned yet the theme is pretty pasted on it's about uh you know post-apocalyptic mad max style marauders yeah gang attacking exactly but it's not for all that it's not very it's not very aggro uh and it doesn't depict anything too unpleasant on the cards there's actually, I, I quite like the artwork, to be honest. Some of the artwork's kind of cool. Some of the cards are very memorable, like the school in the school, which produces you new workers every turn. It shows these uh, children in sort of hilariously antiquated British public school uniforms, but they're wearing gas masks. And it's this neat little touch. The tokens are also beautiful. They're these uh, custom wooden tokens, so the, the metal is represented by little wooden cogs and the the fuel is represented by little blue jerry cans it's great it's really well done it's the kind of thing that you might associate with a kickstarter stretch goal or something but this was not a kickstarter game and uh, just as a minor very minor side note like many of portal's games the msrp for this game is shockingly reasonable it's terrible to say so but the msrp for this game is only 50 bucks which is a lot lower than it could have been i i would not have been surprised to see this game at, at msrp at 60 or maybe even 70 dollars and many games of comparable component quantity and quality retail for much much more so yeah there's a lot of game in that box for sure now, you're going to talk about the expansions. I was. What do you think about the expansions, Walker? Well, I think they're great. I was going to sort of tie it in. That's why I brought it up with because we were just talking about the combat and and worrying about having your buildings destroyed. I don't think there's any mechanisms in the base game, but in the expansion, there are mechanisms in the expansion to actually benefit from having your buildings destroyed. So I thought that was a great touch. It also brings in a, another card that you can purchase from the middle. Like there's uh, Usually there are two cards you can get every turn. One's going to give you more attack icons. One's going to give you more blue icons, which are to make the deals. And now there are orange icons, which... They basically interact with rubble. That's right. Oh, you that, that you... Uh, now you're all going to have your own personal discard pile. So they let you, you know, dig around on the first top card of someone's discard pile. So it's a way to get more cards. So I guess they realized there was a problem with card draw, and they so they sort of bumped up, you know, give you more opportunity to draw more cards. Yeah, so that's that's all from the Scavengers expansion, which was released last year and is the first purchasable expansion. As I mentioned, the core game comes with two expansions inside, which you can mix and match. 
I'm not a huge fan of the expansions. I don't object to them. I'm never going to insist they not be played. I just wish that they changed the game a little bit more because the way you deal with expansions in 51st State Master Set is you have the core game cards, which you play with every game. And if you don't play with any expansions, those are the only cards you play with. And then if you add an expansion, you shuffle it into the deck. But the expansion cards will only end up constituting roughly about a third of the deck anyway. And so the effect they have on the game state is relatively minimal. And so I don't feel that it really provides the kind of different experience that you might be looking for if you've played the base game cards to death. And indeed, many, if not most, successful engines will still rely primarily on base game cards anyhow. And so I wish there were there was a little bit more differentiation. I don't object to them a great deal. As more card packs come out, I'm probably going to buy them. But I was looking for a little bit more. That's all. The reason that there, it might not be might just tie into the one negative point that I do have about the game. And it's that... That is unlucky card draw or someone being overly lucky in card draw. And if you did change the game state with the cards, it might lead more into that. Like if someone's just lucky enough to draw these game-changing cards than you are, then it might unbalance the game more. Well, I don't demand that the cards just be better. I just would have liked a little bit more variety. True. And I agree with you. Like almost any other card-based tableau builder, whether it's Terraforming Mars, whether it's Race for the Galaxy, if you don't get an engine going, if the card if the card draw is such that you just can't find cards that synergize together, then things can get a little bit rough. And if your neighbor gets all the cards they need, then unless you can go burn it down, and sometimes you're in a position where, again, the, the game system won't let you get the resources necessary to go and predate on your opponent, uh, then things can be a little unsatisfying. But again, it's a reasonably short game, so... No, I was just about to say the same thing. It's going to end soon, and you'll be able to play again. Absolutely. So I think that at the end of the day, when as far as I'm concerned, 51st State Master Set, it's probably my second favorite game of its ilk in terms of you know card-based tableau builders. Race of the Galaxy is still my favorite. The primary reason why I like it, again, is because it's so quick and approachable. Race for the Galaxy, although quick, is not approachable. It's very difficult to teach, very difficult to learn how to play. But 51st State is great. And, uh, you know, honestly, when I see people playing, I, I hate to rag on it yet again, but it's worth mentioning. Every time I see people playing Terraforming Mars, I don't know why they, they aren't playing 51st State instead. You had to get that in there, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I agree with all those points. Easy to set up, easy to tear down. That's a lie. Easy to set up, tearing down, because the reasons Mark said where when you play with an expansion, you literally take the cards and you mash them all together. So at the end of the game, technically you'd have to separate them again. Little little fiddly, but other than that, it sets up and tears down reasonably quick. Easy to teach. I'm not just going to go over the same points that you just talked about, but I agree with all of them. So we both really like 51st State Master Set, even though Walker doesn't like calling it that. It's so true. All right, on to our feature topic of the day, and that is Kickstarter exclusives. And I'm sure we're going to add some other Kickstarter stuff on there. We're going to be talking about stuff that only people get who pledge for the Kickstarter would get. Introducing them to games. Do they benefit the game? Do they benefit the actual Kickstarter themselves? Do they benefit our hobby? Do they benefit the part where you pull the game out and you shove your unique components in the face of your friends and you watch them 
cry themselves to sleep while you stand upon the pinnacle of being the best. Sorry. <coughs> that reminds me. Do you have do you, do you have any Blood Rage Kickstarter exclusives, Walker? I, I, I can't remember. Do you? Is Blood Rage, is that a board game? I've never heard of it. So I, I will say this just to start. There's a certain kind of perverse joy that I get in watching a Kickstarter lose its mind. When you see those updated graphics and it says, you know, your base pledge gives you all this, and there's 20 bajillion things listed under that, it's it, the scope of it is is a little impressive, yeah. whether you're involved in the, the, the project or not. Yeah, like when the designers are just like reaching into thin air and, and now we're going to add sugar packets. Yeah. I don't know. We're going to throw sugar packet into it. It's, they just, they've run out. They've, you know, the Kickstarter's got away on them. They, you know, Simon's got the thing down where they're, you know, they're silent for the first, you know, like 48 hours. Cause like they, they, you know, they get to gauge how they're going to set up their stretch goals. You know, and some people are just not used to it, so they have no idea how well their, you know, their campaign's going to go, and they blow through all their stretch goals in, like, the first 24 hours, and then they've got nothing, so then they just start pulling things out of thin air. Have you ever been in a position of having to track down exclusives ex post facto? Like, after a campaign is over and you missed the boat, you either didn't know about it or whatever, have you ever had to go and and try to get things yourself? Have you ever done that successfully? Uh, only once I'd get, I got Orleans. I don't, was it a Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, no, I it's, get, it's funny you bring that up because you didn't get Orleans no, Deluxe. true enough. Well, well, so the, so the, I the, got it, the, the quote but unquote, I didn't purchase it myself. A very dear friend of mine, through his many vines of communication, was, was nice enough to, to procure it for me. Yeah, some, sometimes it's relatively easy to get Kickstarter stuff after the fact. If the Kickstarter wasn't especially mainstream or popular, like for example, I found out about Dogs of War, which is a Simon worker placement game after the Kickstarter was over. In fact, I, I first experienced it in a retail copy and thought it was really great. And then I was able to find the Kickstarter exclusives without too much difficulty. It was kind of okay. But let me tell you, tracking down that copy of Orleans Deluxe, I, ref- I refuse to call it the word that TMG uses for their deluxe games. But the deluxe version of Orleans was really, really, really hard to get. Uh, I was I was surprised by how difficult it was to, to finally track down. And now the Blood Rage exclusives are selling for grotesque quantities of money. I love me some Fenris, but he's selling for, I think, something approaching $100 all by himself. Like, leaving alone the fact that there are then three more Kickstarter exclusive monsters and all that Kickstarter exclusive bling. It, it, oh. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what we're going to talk. What yeah. I'm going to talk about is the fact that I'm I'm more concerned about uh, game components as opposed to like the extra bits that are going to change the game state. Because the exclusive and stretch goals that they put in are things that, that were dropped from the game due to balance or performance issues, and sometimes are not properly developed or balanced. And sometimes people who receive receive them want to play with them. Of course, want to introduce them into all their games. I'm not saying that this happens in all Kickstarters, but in some of them, there are things that were just not included in the base game because they didn't work, and people rightly so want to play with them when they get the game. So things like Fenris and stuff, I don't particularly want. What I do want are the upgraded components. That's what I'm looking for for Kickstarter exclusives. Sometimes you end up in bizarre situations by virtue of these cosmetic upgrades. Let's give let's give an example of someone we actually know who got the base game pledge of Rising Sun but didn't buy the Chinese factions during the Kickstarter campaign. As a result, his base Rising Sun game is going to have all those cosmetic bits of bling, but if he ever wants to expand his game, if he ever wants to buy the Chinese factions later when they hit retail, they're not going to have the expanded bling, and so the components will not match. 
This is often not a problem, not too much of a problem because in the new era of Kickstarter we have, things tend not to get expanded much after the campaign is over. If a game hits Kickstarter and blows through a bunch of stretch goals, it's not going to get expanded down the line. I would be shocked if, for example, Blood Rage ever got another expansion. It's probably done. And we've talked a little bit about the unfortunate market effects that Kickstarter has had on making these games, these bloated but then never further expanded or, or supported affairs. But the cosmetic stuff is just is 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 weird. And I'm I'm pretty much the opposite, actually. I'm usually fine with missing out on cosmetic exclusive stuff. There are some exceptions. Again, picking on the most recent one, talking about Rising Sun, those strongholds. It's not even just that they're so pretty. The, the, the plastic strongholds in Rising Sun are not only really pretty, but the cardboard versions look super janky in comparison. And it is so unfortunate. I, look, it, it's still going to be... The game is still going to be the same, of course. But for people who get the retail version and they have all these beautiful plastic figures tromping around all the map next to these really chintzy-looking strongholds. I thought it was bad enough that, you know, the artwork on the tokens, but then they put in that little, like, sound chip inside the box. So, like, when you looked at your tokens, I went, wah, wah. I thought that was just going over over the top a little bit. A little gratuitous. And that's not true of everything. Like, I love the alliance markers in the Kickstarter-exclusive version. I love the mandate tiles in the Kickstarter-exclusive version of, of Rising Sun. I would be perfectly willing to play with the cardboard alliance markers and with the cardboard mandates, that'd be fine. But those strongholds, man, <laughs> I, ugh. and for one thing, they're just going to get lost. It's going to be hard to see them what with all the figures running around on the board. True, and we had a great idea what to do with those cardboard alliance tokens. And people can use that as well. Throw them in a bag, use them for doing your random startup. If you want to pick, you know, random teams, throw all your cardboard alliance tokens in a bag and you're set to go. Yeah. And the I, th- same, I want to go on the same thing as Scythe, because we're talking about Kickstarters with expansions, right? They had the Near and Far, Far and Away. Invaders from Invaders Afar. Invaders from Afar expansion, where if you had the Kickstarter, everyone had their own battle dial. But if you got the expansion, guess what? They don't get the battle dial. Same thing, you had the upgraded money, the expansion came out with more money, that was cardboard. What are you going to do? Mix cardboard and metal money together? Not me. I would have been much, much happier if there had only been two two dials in the box, if they did not intend to continue putting out new dials for every expansion. We've talked about this before. When when Invaders from Afar came out and people said, but what about the two new dials? Jamie Stegmaier's response was, I'm shocked that people want two more dials. We gave you those three extra dials as just a whatever. Why would we want yet more dials? And the answer is, look, dude, you've set up expectations. You'd better maintain that. And to be fair, and to give credit where credit is due, Stonemaier Games has followed through. They've released those additional dials as promo items that you can get. They've released the additional money pieces as metal that you can get. And so that exa- that that's actually a good example of how to do Kickstarter exclusives well. You make it, you give it to, for free or at a reduced cost or early availability to people who back it in Kickstarter. But then afterwards, you either release it as a timed exclusive, you release it as a promo item that you can get from, say, the BoardGameGeek store, or you release it straight from your own publisher website as a promo. That, I think, is definitely the way to do it. Because then what happens is, I, if I'm an early adopter, I get to feel like I get something special before anyone else does. So I get to feel like I'm being cared for, that my early support is being recognized, and that I'm getting something neat and shiny. But people who miss out 
are able to get it, albeit later, maybe at a, a, a greater cost, maybe at a slightly greater difficulty or whatever, but it's there for people to have. And then you don't end up in situations like you have with Blood Rage, where suddenly the custom plastic markers to track rage and everything sell for 100 bucks on the secondary market, which is just absurd. I totally agree. I think things should be available, I don't know, six months after the fact. All it's going to do is bring you more revenue, and it seems like more and more decisions are being made to make more money, so I don't understand why this isn't a thing. Maybe they think they're going to get less Kickstarter pledges because people just know, because that's the other thing I want to talk about, is these things that, um, where it's early bird, right? Oh, yeah. Let's go over the early bird things, because it's we have the one of the games, what big games that just came on, it was early birds was a whole miniature that you got if you Kickstarted it within the first 24 hours, and if you didn't, then you don't get a component of the game. I thought that but was you could ridiculous. Buy it. No, but you could still buy it. it. Nothing about it was exclusive. Look, I don't mind. I accept the fact that I that I that we have a hobby here that's very expensive. And if you want everything, if you want to be a completionist, you're going to pay through nose. I accept that so long as it's not actually extortionate, like legitimately extortionate. If you want to incentivize people pledging early or whatever, I don't see why the same logic of Kickstarter can't be applied to early birds, right? The logic of Kickstarter is give us money early and we'll give you something cool and give you added value. If there's an early bird that's open in the case of Nemesis, because that's what you're talking about, which was open for the first 24 hours, then it is the case that they say, look, to drum up the initial support, to, to, to drive up our rankings on KickTrack or whatever, there are lots of good reasons, lots of good and possibly some bad reasons for wanting to do this. They'll give you extra value for free. But if you miss that window, you could still get the component. It wasn't time-locked. It was just free if you got there earlier. I've got no problem with that. It, again, making it all available eventually is the model that I prefer, even if it costs more money. The part that I think is unfortunate is where you have all these things that are locked forever and you end up with these bizarre secondary markets. I do respect the fact, let, let me be perfectly clear though, I do respect the fact that Cool Money or Not in particular seems to believe that exclusives are good for its bo- business model. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't keep doing it. They've been doing it long enough and they seem to know the formula well enough that I have to assume that they know what they're doing. Maybe they're wrong, but whatever. They seem they seem clearly intent on it. What is your opinion, Walker? And I, I've got a definite opinion on this, but I, I'd like to hear yours first because I, I, I care about what you think, and I'm also a liar. Well, you said that with a straight face. That was pretty good. I've been practicing. What do you think about items that they say are going to be Kickstarter exclusive, but then due to fan pressure, they release it later? I think that is not good. I think you really need to stand behind your word, especially as a company. Whether it be a bad decision or a good decision, that's how I've... Unless it's physically hurting someone <laughs> you know what I mean unless it's causing someone distress like yeah. actual distress then then you have to stand beside your word you've made a business decision and then what you can do is create something new and different slightly different rebrand it and then put it out yeah Zaya did this actually Zaya Legends of a Drift System or however the heck it's pronounced they had a miniature called the Sword, which they said was going to be exclusive to the first Kickstarter run they didn't even say it was going to be Kickstarter exclusive they said it was going to be exclusive to that campaign uh, but then due to fan pressure they have now the Sword version 2 which is yellow and has the same stats but and is the same mini but it's a different color that's fine that's okay. See, I, I agree with you that it is a bad idea to then go release these exclusive later. Not for the reasons that, look, if if Kumani or not decided to say, screw it, we think this is ridiculous. Here's all the Kickstarter exclusive stuff from Blood Rage. Just go have it. We're gonna we're gonna publish it at MSRP, go go and get it. 
I wouldn't be disappointed in them because I would feel that my stuff is now less valuable because it demonstrably would be. If I wanted to go sell my Kickstarter exclusives, I could make unreasonable quantities of money on it, even though they've been used. If they released that, that value would be destroyed for me. But I don't, I don't, I don't mind. It's kind of like the the situation where you buy a house and then suddenly somebody, uh, you know, your neighbor doesn't take good care of their house and the property falls apart and you start complaining about your property values. Eh, that's that's the way of the world. Property values rise and fluctuate due to a lot of things you have no control over. I'm not saying you have to be happy about it, but it's not like they've broken some sort of direct obligation to you. It, similarly, if I've got an out of print game and they release a new reprint of it, the value drops. My value, my, the, the value of my copy of Upfront up went down when it was reprinted. If Project Elite ever gets reprinted, the value of that goes down. It's just the way of the world. But I agree with you, though. The problem here is they said that they weren't going to do it. I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but I'm, I was an ethicist for many years. And if you say you're going to do something, that creates an obligation for you to follow through, regardless of the consequences involved in it. And I respect the fact, and I'm very sympathetic to people who desperately want those exclusives. And I don't think they would be harming me if they did release the exclusives, even though it would negatively affect the value of some of my assets. But they said they weren't gonna. And if you're gonna say, so, if you're gonna pledge your word to something, you'd better follow through. That's that's my view on that. The other way I've seen other companies get around with it is when they do another Kickstarter for an expansion or something, they'll offer the first. Uh, Kickstarter exclusives for free as a pull-in to get people to do it. So they're not actually releasing them or making them, you know, available for purchase, but they're making them available somehow by yeah. forcing you to buy the expansion while well, forcing in air quotes. Sure. And similarly, I I would applaud, I would legitimately applaud if Kulmini or not decided that, I don't think they ever will, but if they decided to release a deluxe token pack for Blood Rage that looked slightly different, so they, they could say to the people who own the first Kickstarter, your stuff is still exclusive, we're never going to make that available again, but we're making this other different thing available for people now at MSRP, I think that'd be great. I think that's the best of both worlds. I really support publishers who do that. Again, like they did it with Zaya, I think that was the way to do it. Or if they do straight a straight reprint Kickstarter and say, we said it was Kickstarter exclusive and we meant it, but it's exclusive as well to the second Kickstarter. And that's fine too, but but Coolman or not doesn't do that. They don't do reprint Kickstarters, and that's fine. That's just how they do it. So what do you think about Kickstarter exclusive games? Games that are only available on Kickstarter? I think that's perfectly fine. In this new cult of the new that we have, if you think you're going to make money by doing it that way, then that is totally up to your business model. I can understand why people do it. There was obviously Coolman or not's hate. There's also, it looks like Mythic Battles Pantheon is going to be Kickstarter exclusive. Monolith announced that they w they basically regret having made Conan available at retail. And for their upcoming Batman game, it's only going to be a Kickstarter game. And I respect that. One of the consequences of Kickstarters losing their damn mind is you end up with an entire product line overnight. You know, in the past, you'd have a base game and you'd expand it slowly over time. But now... At launch, something has a dozen different boxed products, and you can't expect retailers to carry those things. Certainly not the brick-and-mortar stores, and sometimes even online companies can't deal with that. Or even the companies to be able to, like, supply that much and keep supplies. You have no idea. I, so I, I, with these new giant miniature games coming out, and this is going to be a whole other topic if, it's, if they're even going to be viable or not. Right. But like you said, something like uh, Zombicide or Mythic Pantheon or or the new ones coming in, Agents of Smog. We have an entire shelf full of boxes. Kickstarter is going to be the only way to go. Because retailers, how can retailers even keep up, keep up with Kickstarters by themselves? Never it's, mind, you know, the stuff that's... It's even confusing for the consumer, 
trying to track all this stuff down aftermarket. So yeah, I'm all in favor of companies looking at the situation saying this is actually the best distribution method for us. I don't resent it. I, I certainly approve of it when they try to make sure that they are going to reprint things when there's demand for it. And again, Monolith is going to be reprinting Myth of Battles Pantheon in a in sometime this year, I think is their is their planned timetable, simply because after the launch of the of the product line, they realize, you know, there's still demand for the, for for the game and we're not in a position to release it retail so this is what we're going to do and if you want to make sure that it's it's worth your time you can set the funding goal to be really really high so that you're not going to bother reprinting it unless it's actually worth your while so yeah i agree with you games being kickstarter exclusive i don't mind especially when it is appropriate for the venue we've talked about this before i don't have any particularly pure view of kickstarter as this way to fund only independent artists or what have you i don't I don't uh, see it that way. Mythic Pantheon should just follow what other people do. Come up with a neat new expansion for it. Put it only up on Kickstarter and then just make everything available. Like retor- retail store, you know, click and choose what you want type thing. That would be their best bet. I don't even think there's any intention for new content. I think it's just going to be a reprint stuff. Well, that's what we feel about Kickstarter exclusives. This has been your episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. As Walker said at the outset, we genuinely do appreciate the time that you've decided to spend with us. Please find us on Facebook. Our So Very Wrong About Games page on Facebook is where we keep most of our discussion. And you can feel free to drop us a line there with feedback, requests, or anything you'd like us to talk about. We read everything you send us, and we try to get back to as many people as we can. If you'd like to email or contact one of us directly, you can reach Walker by email at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, at all the games you like. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you liked the episode, tell a friend. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.